Welcome to Snap Sessions, a podcast that looks at international artists and their creative pursuits, as well as interesting articles and broadcasts across the political spectrum. My name is Doug Nunn. I'm joined by voiceover colossus Ken Krause, by our behind-the-scenes tech meister Marshall Brown, and by our artist-activist of the show, drummer and percussion teacher Claudia Page. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes. Thanks to our Snappus Maximus contributors, Ron Hooksprung and Rick and Henny Newman. And to our supportive snappers, Ellen Athens, Peter and Sheila Jowers, Kathy White, Dominique Jowers and John Bird, Gabriel Geiger, and Christine Samus. Other contributors include Steve Weingarten and Jerry Shook. These supporters help keep Snap Sessions snapping. Join the Snap Sessions family. Snap Sessions is proud to announce our own Doug Nunn is publishing his book, Jolly Old Elf, The Art of Santa H. Claus, just in time for the holidays. Just listen to these reviews. From the Snow Yorker. One of the ten coldest books of the year, a genuine tour de frost. From the North Pole Review of Books. An extraordinary look behind the scenes at just maybe the most benevolent operation on the whole planet. This book salutes the man and the crew who have brought us more joy than anyone else. In this time of pandemic and wannabe fascists, Santa's story needed to be told, and Frosty, Mrs. C, and their frozen crews do it with splendid vigor. From North Pole Variety. Excellently ecstatic. Xmas expose. And from renowned German critic Ralph Primer. Five out of five stars. Ho, ho, ho becomes ha, ha, ha. Jolly Old Elf can be purchased at Amazon.com, at independent publisher Ingram Spark, and ordered at your local bookstore, like Mendocino's own Gallery Bookshop and Bookwinkles, online at GalleryBookshop.com. Check Snap Sessions' website, thesnapsessions.com, for further information. Jolly Old Elf, The Art of Santa H. Claus makes a great gift. The Twilight Zone, a Snap Sessions tribute. There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the Twilight Zone. That was the forbidding introduction to The Twilight Zone, a show which scared the bejesus out of me as a child. The show came out when I was seven years old, when I was very easy to frighten, and it lasted until I was 12, 
when I was still very easy to terrify. The show was mostly written by Rod Serling, Charles Beaumont, and Richard Matheson, with Serling himself writing 92 of the 156 episodes. It was by turns ironic, thought-provoking, eerie, and acerbic. It was filled with plot twists, unconventional characters, and unexpected endings. And it was, by most measures, a very influential show. The Twilight Zone was an American TV anthology series created and presented by scriptwriter-playwright Rod Serling. The original series ran for five seasons from 1959 to 1964 on CBS television. Each episode was a standalone tale where people find themselves dealing with strange and extraordinary happenings, experiences which lead them to enter the Twilight Zone. The show was frequently of the science fiction variety and had surprise endings or plot twists with morals that seemed to come from nowhere. It has continued to be acclaimed over time, having been named number seven of Rolling Stone's list of the 100 greatest TV shows ever, number 26 on TV Guide's greatest TV shows of all time, and back in 2013, the Writers Guild of America ranked it as the third best-written TV series ever. Creator Rod Serling was sort of a young lion of 1950s television. He wrote for Kraft Television Theater, Hallmark Hall of Fame, and Playhouse 90, with a number of excellent scripts. His Requiem for a Heavyweight Teleplay in 1956, starring Jack Palance, was much praised, later becoming a successful film. In 1958, Serling wrote a pilot for a TV anthology series called The Time Element, about a man with nightmares about the attack on Pearl Harbor. Serling's surprise ending drew rave reviews, and CBS agreed to produce The Twilight Zone. Little did they know, this was the first of many of Serling's supernatural adventures. It was Serling's notion that science fiction settings with robots, aliens, and otherworldly characters would allow him the freedom to do social and political commentary. The first season did not disappoint. It included a series of wonderfully odd stories, including the classic Time Enough at Last, starring veteran character actor Burgess Meredith. He played a bookish bank teller who prefers reading to his job, his wife, and just about everything else. One day, he locks himself in the bank vault to read when a nuclear attack destroys not only the bank, but the entire city around him. When he comes out, he discovers he is the sole survivor as he walks through the rubble. Seconds, minutes, hours. They crawl by on hands and knees for Mr. Henry Bemis, who looks for a spark in the ashes of a dead world. They're all dead. They must be. Everybody's dead except me. A quandary indeed, until Henry finds stacks of canned food and then the wreck of a library. 
Suddenly, the bookish Mr. Bemis sees something positive in the apocalypse. And the best thing, the very best thing of all, is there's time now. There's all the time I need and all the time I want. Time, time, time. Ah, there's time enough at last. And then the script reads, he retraces his footsteps back over to the steps, sits down, leans against a pillar, looks down at the book which lies open to its first page. He bends over to pick it up, extremely tight close shot on his glasses as they fall and break. Extremely tight close shot looking up toward Bemis from the ground. The look on his face could only be described as that of a man suddenly beset by a demon. First horror, then fear, then a sick, all-pervading sadness and realization. The book and broken glasses, distorted, fuzzy, out of focus, as his hand comes out from behind the camera, groping, touches the glasses, feels them, then lets them drop. Then the hand gropes over to the book, picks it up, holds it out in front of him. The page is blurred. Tears roll down his face. That's not fair. <laughs> That's not fair. Oh, what a tragedy for Henry Bemis. Let's take a look at another standout episode from season two, The Invaders. Serling's introduction takes us way out to the countryside, or so it seems. This is one of the out-of-the-way places, the unvisited places, bleak, wasted, dying. This is a farmhouse, handmade, crude, a house without electricity or gas, a house untouched by progress. This is the woman who lives in the house, a woman who's been alone for many years. A strong, simple woman whose only problem up until this moment has been that of acquiring enough food to eat. A woman about to face terror, which is, even now, coming at her from the Twilight Zone. And then what follows are a series of very scary scenes where the poor woman, all by herself, battles what seems to be an invasion of little aliens. We hear the sound of a spacecraft. We become more and more involved in the female character's point of view, sharing her increasing fear and horror of these cruel little extraterrestrials. The woman fights back courageously against these seemingly malevolent little aliens in the dark house. At one point, the woman is stabbed by a little robot, and it looks like she will be overwhelmed. But she fights back ferociously and appears to be destroying the spacecraft, which sputters and shakes. And then we hear a voice. 
Central Control. Come in, Central Control. Do you read me? Gresham is dead. Repeat, Gresham is dead. The ship's destroyed. Incredible race of giants here. Race of giants. No Central Control. No counterattack. Repeat, no counterattack. Too much for us. Too powerful. Stay away. Then the camera focuses on the spacecraft, which bears the lettering, U.S. Air Force Space Probe 1. Another fantastical, ironic plot twist, followed by Serling's postscript. These are the invaders, the tiny beings from the tiny place called Earth, who would take the giant step across the sky to the question marks that sparkle and beckon from the vastness of a universe only to be imagined. The invaders, who found out that a one-way ticket to the stars beyond has the ultimate price tag. And we have just seen it entered in a ledger that covers all the transactions of the universe. A bill stamp paid in full and to be found on file in the Twilight Zone. This ending absolutely stunned me the first time I saw it. And when I recently rewatched it in preparation for this tribute, it seemed no less startling. Season 5, Episode 4, A Kind of Stopwatch, starts off with an irritating and boring little man named Patrick Thomas McNulty, who annoys the hell out of everyone he meets. He just won't stop talking. And do you know why, Mr. Cooper, likes him, McNulty? Because I have been feeding suggestions in that suggestion box for 11 months now. <laughs> Did I say suggestions? The wrong word. Suggestions any clod can make, but dynamic blueprints for the future only McNulty can make. You think about that now. He's waiting, McNulty. Eleven months of suggestions about to pay off. <laughs> Submitted for your approval, or at least your analysis, one Patrick Thomas McNulty, who at age 41 is the biggest bore on Earth. He holds a ten-year record for the most meaningless words spewed out during a coffee break. And it's very likely that as of this moment, he would have gone through life in precisely this manner. A dull, argumentative big mouth who sets back the art of conversation a thousand years. I say he very likely would have, except for something that will soon happen to him. Something that will considerably alter his existence and ours. Now you think about that now, because this is the Twilight Zone. About a third of the way into the episode, McNulty is bothering folks in a bar and meets a fellow with a stopwatch. He gives it to McNulty without fanfare, and then McNulty suddenly feels he may be on to something. Something tells me this is a very unusual watch. It is. It works. I push the button, I stop the watch, and I stop the world. McNulty is immediately infused with hubris and resolves to rob banks and get as much money as quickly and secretly as he can. And then, in classic Twilight Zone fashion, the watch breaks. Oh no. Come on. Everyone. Move. Move. Come on, everybody. Up, up, move. Do something. Come on, everybody. Say something. Walk. Hey. Come on, everybody. Move. But they won't. And McNulty is now left alone 
with no one to talk to. Mr. Patrick Thomas McNulty, who had a gift of time. He used it and he misused it. And now he's just been handed the bill. Tonight's tale of motion and McNulty in the Twilight Zone. One of the best-remembered episodes, also from Season 5, is Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, starring a then-unknown William Shatner. Shatner is playing Robert Wilson, who's just been discharged from a sanitarium, where he spent the previous six months after suffering a nervous breakdown. Tonight, he's traveling all the way to his appointed destination, which, contrary to Mr. Wilson's plan, happens to be in the darkest corner of the Twilight Zone. Mr. Wilson had been given a window seat, and the flight is bumpy, as it's very rainy outside. Wilson believes he sees a gremlin of some sort walking along the wing outside the window and pulling at the metal stretched over the wing. He is overwhelmed with anxiousness, but he's trying hard to deal with it, as he's just had that nervous breakdown. Honey, what is it? The emergency window? You want to move? No, no, no. Doesn't matter. What's the difference where I sit? It's not the seat, it's the airplane. His wife takes a sleeping pill, and suddenly Wilson is left alone to deal with the gremlin. Or is it his imagination? Soon he can see the gremlin pulling the wing apart, and he is driving his fellow passengers batty. He jumps away whenever anyone might see him. Except me. I didn't tell you before because I wasn't sure whether it was real or not, but I am sure now it is real. There's a man out there. Or a, a gremlin. After grabbing a police officer's weapon and attempting to shoot the gremlin, Wilson is finally tied down by the crew. Once the airplane has landed, everyone believes that Robert has gone insane. As he is whisked away on a gurney in a straitjacket, Robert tells his wife that he alone knows what really happened during the flight. However, the final scene reveals extensive damage to the exterior of one of the aircraft's engines, confirming that Robert was right all along. The flight of Mr. Robert Wilson has ended now. A flight not only from point A to point B, but also from the fear of recurring mental breakdown. Mr. Wilson has that fear no longer, though for the moment he is, as he has said, alone in this assurance. Happily, his conviction will not remain isolated too much longer. For happily, tangible manifestation is very often left as evidence of trespass, even from so intangible a quarter as the Twilight Zone. So the Twilight Zone could evoke the complete fear we might all face inside our minds. But it could also force us to consider what we might face as a planet if we were to have extraterrestrial visitors. Perhaps one of the best Twilight Zones of all was Season 3, Episode 24's To Serve Man. In this installment, Earth is visited by apparently benevolent aliens who seem to be offering us all kinds of wonders, turning deserts into gardens, giving us force fields to end military attacks, even offering visits to their home planet of Kaminitz. Early on, one of them addresses the UN telepathically. Ladies and gentlemen of the Earth, we greet you in peace and friendship. We come from a planet far beyond this galaxy. 
a planet far more developed than Earth, but we come as friends. Although we know your language, our own methods of communication are mental rather than verbal. Hence, the voice you hear me speaking with is totally mechanical. Our intentions are honorable. We desire above all things to help and in the near future to set up reciprocal visits between Earth people and Canamids. It seems too good to be true. The aliens offer a book in their hard-to-translate language, which Earth's linguists try to decode. They finally realize the title is To Serve Man, while the rest of the book seems indecipherable and takes longer to translate. Meanwhile, the Kaminets are busy helping solve various of our terrestrial problems, and thousands of Earthlings begin boarding spaceships for the Kaminets' home planet. Finally, just as the main character, a translator named Mr. Chambers, is climbing the ladder to get on board for a trip to the Kaminets' planet, his secretary runs up. Mr. Chambers, don't get on that ship! The rest of the book, to serve men, it's, it's a cookbook! No! 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 The recollections of one Michael Chambers with appropriate flashbacks and soliloquy or more simply stated, the evolution of man, the cycle of going from dust to dessert, the metamorphosis from being the ruler of a planet to an ingredient in someone's soup. It's tonight's Bill of Fare from the Twilight Zone. So Chambers is on the Kaminitz menu in another unexpected Twilight Zone ending. As wonderful as Serling, Beaumont, and Matheson's scripts were, there was also that amazing theme song and the musical scoring of the episodes. Initially, the song was the work of Bernard Herrmann, who had written music for movies like Citizen Kane, Cape Fear, Vertigo, and Psycho, as well as The Day the Earth Stood Still, which just may be the most evocative space travel music ever written. Herman had a knack for musical spookiness and melodic scariness, which may be unequaled in movie or television music history. Later, Herman's theme was tinkered with by the French composer Marius Constant, who made the theme even more jarring and dissonant with its now familiar guitar and bongo theme. The musical scoring of the episodes was excellent as well. Season 2's The Invaders is full of great little scores, making you aware of sudden changes in mood scaring you out of your wits and turning your hair almost literally white, well, not really, but inevitably changing your mood whether you like it or not. The Twilight Zone has been enormously influential since CBS opted not to renew it back in 1964. I can't imagine the outer limits. The X-Files or Black Mirror ever happening without the Twilight Zone having been there first. 
And think of all these young, unknown actors who are part of those episodes. Robert Redford, Charles Bronson, Burt Reynolds, Robert Duvall, Carol Burnett, Cloris Leachman, and Peter Falk. And let's not forget William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, James Duhon, and George Takai. Why, how could Star Trek have ever happened without the Twilight Zone? So when someone asks you if you're having a Twilight Zone experience, think back on this groundbreaking little piece of visionary television that got us all started, Rod Serling's The Twilight Zone. Thanks for listening to Snap Sessions. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to us on Patreon. We depend on the support of listeners like you. Claudia Page, who uh, is a drummer extraordinaire. Claudia was born in San Francisco and raised in Mendocino, California, in our wonderful uh, alternative hippie community, mostly in the 70s and early 80s. Claudia, I've known you for years. Let's let the uh, folks, the Snap Sessions fans know, tell us about your early childhood and growing up in Mendocino back in those days. Uh, Mendocino will always be my spirit and heart home no matter where I'm at. I, Like you said, I was born in San Francisco and one little family story, my sister had been kidnapped by our babysitter's daughter and boyfriend. They didn't want me. I was just a little tight and that was pretty crazy. They were going to take her to the Mexican border and sell her. Thankfully, we got her back and then my mom and dad decided Well, a few different things. They had gone to Winterland and heard Timothy Leary speak. And then they were invited to Mendocino to just have a little vacation. And I think it was the owner of the Heritage House. This was back in probably 66, 67. And they just, they fell in love with Mendocino and made the decision that they didn't want to raise kids in San Francisco in the city. So we packed up and we moved to Mendocino when I was probably about four. So, you know, we're talking about 67, 68, 67 that we came to Mendocino, which was, like you said, a nice, slow, hippie time with art and music. And it was just, it it was amazing. So that's pretty much how we moved to Mendocino. And of course, I lived there 
from four to 19 before leaving. But yes, I mean, when they, when I tell people I was raised by a village, have an amazing mom, but yes, I was raised by a village of amazing Mendocino. Yeah. You know, you talked a lot in the John Chamberlain tribute that we've done about, you know, your house being like a haven for musicians and stuff. Tell us a little bit about that before we get off into drumland. Well, I mean, music was everywhere and there were so many places in Mendocino that had live music five, six nights a week. But we lived in the village of Mendocino on Albion Street. And it just seemed like that was the place. Jewish mama making food, potato pancakes and all kinds of fun stuff. So everybody just kind of showed up there like Lenny Lax, who was my uncle, not by blood, but he was always Uncle Lenny. You know, all the different musicians that would come through town would come over Lenny's, you know, buddy, Lenny Capizzi, who wrote The Monster Mash, just uh, Jack Elliott. But then just all the musicians of Mendocino would always end up at our house. In fact, I would wake up in the morning getting ready for school. I would have to step over musicians to get to my bowl of cereal and then go to school. That that was amazing. My mom worked at a nightclub called the Foghorn. I, maybe it was Slade's first and then turned to the foghorn. And so musicians would come into town and sometimes wouldn't have a place to stay. So they would end up at my house. And with all the local musicians and all the touring musicians, I just couldn't wait to come home and bask in the glory of music at my house. Well, you know, you talk about falling in love with drums by the age of seven. In some ways, you say it's kind of a match made by poverty. What was that day? What was what does that mean to you? I mean, really, give us a little bit more background even about those first days about why drums? Why did you decide to head in that direction? Well, we can thank my mom and we can thank the legendary Bob Ayers for getting me into drums. Having an older sister, she played flute in the school band. She was 10. And I just thought, I want to play trumpet. I loved Bob Ayers. So I thought, I'm going to play trumpet. And so my mom went to Bob and said, look, Claudia wants to play trumpet, but we can't afford it. We're on very limited income. And he said, look, you know, she's seven years old. Let's just go to the store, buy her some drumsticks and put her in the corner, let her play and just play. I'll teach her. And look, and next year, if she still wants to play trumpet, the school and everybody, the community will all chip in and we'll rent her a trumpet. And so my mom said, what do you think about playing drums instead? And I just thought, okay, I'll try it. And I, it was just, it became my living skin. It became how I calmed myself, even though drums is wild. It just, I became focused. I fell in love. I had such a supportive family that before I knew it, within a year, my grandparents bought me my first drum set from Sears. Remember back when Sears had, (laughs) they sold musical equipment and that, you know, between Bob Ayers teaching me and I, I picked it up really fast between at one point, Cat Mother living behind our house on Main Street in the playhouse and having access to Michael Equin, I just, I fell in love with the drums and then the trumpet dream went away, basically. <laughs> yeah. Michael Equin was the drummer for Cat Mother back then, right? Just, right. Great. Yeah. Now, I do remember actually running around town when I got the new drums to find Michael at the age of seven because Mendocino is so great and such a little town. They could let the kid go run around to find Michael to come to our house to help me set up the drums. 
you know, and then he became my rock and roll teacher. Bob Ayers was teaching me more about marching band and all that stuff. But I, I was the first, you know, when I was in grammar school, Bob invited me to be in the marching band, which didn't at first go over very well because what high school kid wants a 10 year old, you know, playing in the high school marching band, but that was pretty amazing, you know? That's great. Yeah. Now, speaking of Michael Equin, his daughter Rain and you were part of a band called Jane. And that's the first, that's sort of, I think, when I got to know you. And Jane was an all girl band, as I recall. You joined and uh, you guys put together as a teenager. It was kind of a, an all girl punk band. I, I really liked Jane. I thought Jane was a hot band. Uh, we talked about the song you guys produced, Too Stupid to Live, which was a John Chamberlain song for the group you recorded all kinds of stuff what made you decide to record too stupid to live and what are some of the other songs tell us about some of jane's songs over time well too stupid to live first time i heard is when i was invited by hit and run theater to sit in for the arnie vicious show on a couple of songs and then that's when i heard too stupid to live jane yes we were a teenage band um living in mendocino with a time where women empowerment there was consciousness raising groups going on at my house the kids had to go upstairs we kind of listened, going okay those are adult problems and then sometimes somebody's mom would get arrested protesting at Lawrence Livermore Labs and then I would say can blah 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 stay at our house so we were living in a time of just empowerment for women and also during a political time so we decided yes we're going to write punk music but we call it music with a message and too stupid to live we actually did live recordings and didn't record it in the studio except at our awesome high school recording studio and we just thought that it had such a great message and I remember running around town trying to find John Chamberlain to, to see what he thought you know could Jane play his songs we'll make him proud but we want to speed it up and you know make it a little more punk but we were gonna we just you know we love who doesn't love John Chamberlain and all of his music so that's how we started playing Too Stupid to Live and then really just we wrote songs about everything from sending our boys off to war because that was when pretty much just guys were fighting in the military to toxic shock syndrome to wasting your brain on too much TV to spills of toxic waste and so everything was music with a message I think that it was hard to kind of categorize Jane because we were doing political rock music instead of you know people would say why don't you guys write love songs and you know, I think we wrote one song called Lust Not Love because we were just trying to, you know, that was in the days we were wearing buttons that said question authority and also living in Mendocino of just be empowered and ask for what you want in life. Put that intention out there and turn it into action. And we were just really, really strong teenage girls. And that's pretty much what Jane was like. And, you know, then we graduated and took it to the city. You know, that that was pretty impressive though. I mean, in a lot of ways, 
you guys were fairly sophisticated political thinkers uh, for, for teenagers. And I don't say that like condescending. I taught high school for years. I was always impressed by the stuff that people would come up with. But there was a level of sophistication to some Jane songs. You mentioned a song about toxic shock syndrome. And that was a, a heady topic in those days. And you guys were bringing it up. You know, here's a bunch of girls 15 to 18 or 19 yep. singing about this. Tell us about that song, maybe. Well, toxic shock just... I wish I had a, a recording of it, which I do somewhere. It was really just, we wanted to bring awareness of what toxic shock syndrome was doing to young girls wearing tampons and stuff. And we thought, well, we'll do it with a really fast beat and then we'll have a chorus, toxic shock, toxic shock. And it made people, like you said, it made people think. And I just remember, you know, a, a lot of our songs just sitting, sitting in a room with each other and writing lyrics together that was that was really different you know to be able to write lyrics together throw out a line sometimes somebody would come in with lyrics written sometimes they wouldn't but really it was just to bring awareness because people were talking about toxic shock but it was still a hush hush because it's you know it's infections you're getting from wearing tampons you know (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah, it was a big deal at the time, and it was kind of interesting that you guys were talking about it. Now, um, Jane lasted about seven years or so, that's correct? Yes, I mean, we had, there was many incarnations since we all grew up together in Mendocino. I think our first band was called Venus on Fire, and then the band turned into another band called Sirens, and a few people, different girls in the band, and then it just ended up Jane, and we were originally a four-piece, and then we just turned into this power trio once we got out of high school we moved to the Russian River and started performing around San Francisco but it was really our school like Charles Bush who ran the community school that gave us a platform where the band was so good that we started going and playing proms and homecomings all around the county and stuff and and Jane was we just wanted to be different so we would do everything like if we wanted lights we would put it on the floor and have it going up instead of at us and sometimes people would say that's not where you put lights or I don't know if you remember our costumes designed by Tina Schubeck sometimes we would wear garbage bags plastic garbage bags and tie them and make little skirts you know with hangers and garbage bags or make our own clothes. And so we were definitely decorate the stage in plastic and mylar and lights. And, you know, so we were, we were definitely trying to be a little, a little different. The band, we moved, we all lived together, which was great. We left Mendocino and we, you know, got a, a house and we all lived together and we all rehearsed together. We ate drank, lived our music, you know, about seven years, I guess, of the band, then things started to change. I guess one of the big reasons that Jane ended, I mean, there were lots of different reasons. Everybody wanted to do different things. As a drummer, I wanted to do different styles, but it was really one of my best friends in Berkeley being murdered by one of my best friends. And that was really intense. It made Rain, the lead singer, guitar player, say, I don't want to do this city anymore. I'm moving back to the Ozark Mountains. Kirsten was starting, bass player was starting to play with others. And me, I just, I wanted to start making it more of a business and my income. And stylistically, I was just ready for something different. So I think the catalyst
Willis, unfortunately, was our dear friend getting murdered. And then us saying maybe this is there was a little bit too much partying going on. And I didn't want to be part of that big party scene. I was super focused on drumming. And so it, it just, you know, it came to an end. Yeah. You know, part of the thing I think is amazing, you're you're kind of at a certain point, Mendocino Girl becomes Northern California musician and you start to meet all these other people. You played with people like uh, Gene Parsons from The Bird, Bonnie Rayet, Tito Puente, Jerry Garcia, and lots of other people. Maybe talk about working with some of these people. Well, I'll tell you, with Jerry Garcia, he came to Mendocino once and he played at the foghorn just him one of my besides michael equin i was really lucky to have a couple few mentors that were amazing gene parsons i could just follow and watch the way he drummed because he was drumming more back then when i was a kid and just the the grounding energy that that gene had and just his personality of a beautiful man that was so inclusive to a little girl playing a male dominating instrument i mean let's just get real. It's a male dominating instrument. And so Gene was always so inclusive with me growing up. But to get back to Jerry Garcia, he came and sat in and played. And I remember kids weren't really allowed to go into Foghorn, but since my mom worked there, I was, I was, and I just had the energy and chutzpah to go up to him and say, can I sit in? And he loved it. I mean, we just connected so well. And his drummer, Billy Kreutzman, lived in in the area. He gave me a handful of lessons. Unfortunately, we were on food stamps and welfare and we couldn't afford his lessons. So after I played with Jerry, I saw him again and he gave me this necklace with silver drumsticks. And he said, look, kid, you graduate in a few years. Here's my number. Connect. And I kept that. And after, you know, I was in ninth grade or something when I graduated and we moved down in the Bay Area, I contacted him and asked him if he remembered me. And he said he did. And he had the Jerry Garcia band and he played at the Berkeley Square. And so I played a couple of times with him. I got to sit in with him at the Berkeley Square. And that was amazing. And if I can just say something about Tito, Tito Puente, Jane, our booker, booked us in the Mission District of San Francisco. In a tiny little club and we were wondering, okay, you know, we were just like, what, 22 years old. So we go to this mission club and we realize, wow, this is like an old man's, you know, Hispanic bar. What are they booking Gene? Political rock punk band. You know, you go in, that is not, you're not hearing rock and roll. I mean, everybody was probably in their 60s or 70s, but being 20-something, we're like, this is an old man's bar. But we went and we set up our equipment and we started to play and people are kind of looking at us like, huh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's pretty good. And I noticed this guy sitting at the end of the bar and I leaned over to the bass player and I said, that's totally Tito Puente. So on a break, I went up to him before I could even say anything. He's like, damn, girl, you have some power and strength. And we just started talking drums. He said, you know, we started talking style. And I said, I didn't really know how to do songo and sambas and Afro-Cuban Latin drum styles, but I really, really loved his drumming. He had such power. And Sheila E was the only person I knew that was playing, you know, like timbales and stuff. And anyway, he said something like, well, I would try to play punk music, but nobody ever gives me the opportunity. So I said, well, where do you live? And he said, oh, when I'm in town, just down the street. And I just said, why don't you go get your timbales and sit in? And he said, okay. So he did. Wow. And so he came and then everybody, and then the whole 
place filled up. And then they were they were just wondering, what is he doing with this rock band? So I, I can't even remember which song. I think we played something in the time signature of seven and just he and I got to solo around. So that was amazing. He was also a, a really amazing human. Yeah. You know, one of the things I like so much about your career is that you're kind of the person who has weaved community service into your art. I know for about five or six years, you were a resident drummer for the San Francisco Mime Troupe. And of course, they do lots of political shows. They're in the community. They do shows in the parks in the Bay Area or up till COVID they have. And you toured with them and they tour all over the the country. They also tour internationally. Talk a little bit about your experiences with the Mime Troupe and how it influenced you. I always loved the Mime Troupe and thankfully their drummer seat opened up. Ellen Callis had contacted me and I came in for an audition and yes, I did a handful of several shows with them, including a national tour, many, many shows. One of them that stands out is Revenger Rat that I think Michael Sullivan, I think possibly wrote. And that was just educating on smoking cigarettes. And we went and performed at all these schools in San Francisco. And then of course, uh, doing a national tour with one of their shows that they had already done called Offshore. And that was amazing because I got to learn uh, a kabuki style of drumming and taiko and different aging styles of drumming. I mean, what I loved about the San Francisco Mime Troupe is that theater style, that Commedia dell'arte theater style. So for a drummer, everything being punctuated or having that eye contact of somebody walking across the stage or turning their head. And I had all this percussion. I think it really, it's one of my favorite styles. It's so interactive. That was amazing. And then just working with the composers, like including, of course, the legendary Bruce Barthol and and Dred Scott and Eric Crystal and all these amazing musicians. But they were all more, except for Bruce Barthol, kind of in the jazz scene. I was in the funk rock, psychedelic scene. So I learned a lot just musically with all the different styles. And of course, politically, I just love that they would show both sides and then they would do it in a humorous way. But it's really the Commedia dell'arte theater style that the San Francisco Mime Troupe does. And that inspired me to be more of a visual drummer and being able to find the holes of where I can shine and then bring back when there's dialogue or how to support a singer. And it, it was amazing. One of my favorite, favorite memories of life is working with the San Francisco Mime Troupe. I miss them. They are family always in my heart. That's wonderful. You know, apropos community work, you also worked on the Super Saturday School program, which you helped start down in Oakland, Oakland, California. That's where you offer drumming instruction to inner city elementary age kids. How did this program come about? I uh, was playing in a band that I started and the fiddle player was a school teacher. And we just started talking about wouldn't it be nice to invite kids to an after school program or maybe we'll just do it on Saturday. And then we came up with Super Saturday School. But really, it was a chance to have kids that don't have the financial means to play music. And for me, I wanted to show these kids that rhythm is everywhere 
everywhere, to play lots of games and know that rhythm is everywhere from a construction company hammering to somebody playing a basketball to anything and that you don't need drums necessarily to play music. So really, it was just a chance to get kids that don't have access to music and for me to just drum out the emotion and work in like the areas that are considered, you know, a little rougher than some other areas of the East Bay. And, you know, which it was just, it was empowering to start that program. And we brought in the other musicians. Everybody just donated their time. It wasn't a money-making thing. It was just running workshops and donating time to bring music to everybody. In fact, my brother-in-law helped me make practice pads. I went and, you know, we cut wood and I went and, you know, got the rubber to make these practice pads for these kids. And then I just went to music stores and said, musicians are, you know, trying to help the inner city kids of East Oakland. Do you want to donate? So we had drumsticks donated and then everybody got to have a practice pad, you know, and that was amazing. That's terrific. Great stuff. Now you've been community Claudia, but you've also been international Claudia. And I mentioned uh, some work you've, I'd like to talk about some work you did for the United Nations in post Bosnia, where you toured Croatia and Hungary as well. In your bio, you mentioned you traveled from military base to military base with Humvees in front and back and soldiers with M16s looking for snipers as you travel from show to show. Pretty, pretty exciting to listen to. <laughs> now, as we know, the, the civil war in Yugoslavia ruptured Europe in the 1990s. Tell us about some of those experiences that you might have had on, on that tour. Well, that was a really an amazing opportunity to go tour the United Nations. I wasn't sure what to expect. It was under the Clinton administration, and I felt a little safer. We were beloved in other countries at that time. I remember calling my Uncle Milty, and I said, look, should I do this tour? Is it safe? You know, this is literally, this was in 98, right after the Serb War, but there was still a lot going on and war criminals to be found. And he's like, yes, yes, go and do it. You need a roadie? Anyway, <laughs> so I, I, we went there. Uh, I joined an L.A. Um, all-female band, and we I didn't know what to expect. And we actually landed in Frankfurt, you know, to, on the military base first. And um, by the time we got to Bosnia or some of these military bases, I just realized that, oh, this is intense. We had to go get shrapnel-proof vests and helmets. And like you said, uh, when we would travel military base to military base. We had Humvees with soldiers with their M16s ready to go looking for snipers. And here's this, you know, California all-girl band entertaining the United Nations, not just the American soldiers. Most of the bases we played were Actually, all of them were dry bases and with the American soldiers. But then we would start to play these events for all different. You would start to recognize the fatigues from different countries like, oh, that's the Norway soldiers. You know, these are the German. These are the French. And it was amazing. But it was also a little bit scary, you know, because we would be on a certain military base, wouldn't have a lot to do until we'd go on stage. We'd walk around. There would be yellow tape that said mine, like don't go over there because they hadn't cleared the landmines. I understood what Princess Diana was trying to do with her action of clearing landmines in Bosnia. I mean, it was 
a, a crazy time, even though the war had ended. So we were in Sarajevo, then we went to Zagreb, Croatia, and um, Budapest, Hungary. And I remember telling my mom that we were briefed by the Pentagon that I wasn't going to be able to tell her where the military bases were because it's a secret. And <laughs> try to tell your Jewish mother that we had to be really, really careful and we were taken well care of. And it also changed my mind a little bit about I'm against war, but I'm not against the people who want to enlist. But I felt like everybody who was going to join the military maybe wanted to fight. And I met some really incredible people that just wanted to have a different life and get a career it was it was really different, but there were a few times, like one time they caught a war criminal and they had to keep us on the military bus. And it, it was something so, so different. By the time I got back to America, I went to San Francisco and I would see a plastic bag in the street. I would be, oh yeah, there's no landmines here. I mean, landmines everywhere all over Bosnia and Croatia. and But they, they, everybody seemed to love the music and it was just an incredible time being with all these people and also kind of scary. We would put on, you know, this was during the winter too. So we didn't know, I mean, it looked like a mash, like it was a private Benjamin moment for sure. Cause we'd go out to this military base going, okay. And couldn't go anywhere without wearing our shrapnel proof vests and our helmets because they're trying to protect us. And I think it surprised us that we had to have Humvees with the soldiers with our M16s, making sure that we're okay. And they can get us from military base to military base. It was that amazing. What was the band? Was it a put-together band, or was this a band that you were a regular with at the time? Well, actually, I was living in San Francisco, and this band was in L.A. They were called the Mistrels, and their drummer dropped out, didn't want to go to a war-torn country, was too afraid. And so I knew the lead singer, and she said, do you want to do this? They paid us really well. It was different. Everything was different. Like, you'd wake up and go into the mess hall to have breakfast, and I noticed these barrels in front of going into having food that the soldiers would go shoot into. And I think it was just to make sure that they unloaded everything out of their gun and then they would go in and have their meal. I remember the Pentagon um, saying, "Okay, well, when we go to military base, to military base, we're not going to stop if you have to go to the bathroom. Just know that because we're in Serb territory and we're looking for snipers. And so they said, so take a water bottle, you'll cut it off and then you can go in the back of the bus to go to the bathroom. And I remember one time we begged them to please stop so that we could use the bathroom. They said, okay. And it was crazy. We got off the bus and all the soldiers were there with their guns looking all around while the girl band went and used the bathroom, which was actually a hole in the ground because it's really different in there. But the other thing about Sarajevo that was different is I would see all these shells from the war that were gathered, polished, and etched beautifully that were being sold. And I thought that that was really interesting. Like, huh, this is obviously has killed people. And big red splattered paint in the marketplace uh, that symbolized all the death. It was in Zagreb, Croatia. What it, when we went to that United Nation place, they just had these brick walls that covered with all these names of people who had died and candles flickering. And that it was just, it was amazing. 
It was amazing. It really sounds amazing. And part of the thing that's fascinating about talking to you is all the different stuff you've done, which is which is pretty cool. I know you've toured all over the United States. You've been in 11 countries. And, you know, I think it's it would be good now to talk about some of the musical styles that, that you've been part of. Because one of the cool things about percussion is all the variety that you add to music. You've played with all kinds of bands. Uh, you've played with, uh, I mean, obviously, Jane. When Girls Collide is a pretty cool name. I'm just pulling them out. The Druid Sisters, which you seem to have done a fair amount of recording with. Maybe you could walk us through uh, three or four of your songs. And um, when we when we put together the uh, interview, we can have it playing in the background. I have some that, that from your um, list of stuff that you've given us. African Moon Tune is one of them. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the work you did on that. We'll talk about a couple songs at this point. Yeah, African Moon Tune um, was recorded with my band that I started called the Druid Sisters. And you're right. I, I always wanted to be a fusion drummer and learn all styles from around the world. And then since we are one world and put them together. So my idea for the Druid Sisters was me playing more African rhythms with a Celtic fiddler, with a didgeridoo, Australian didgeridoo, with a trance singer playing an Indian harmonium and a gypsy cellist. And I thought I'm going to get all this stuff and put it together. African Moon Tune is Celtic heavy on the fiddle with this rolling drum, African field drum, and my own spin of adding more of a funk and a groove with that. And we were recording and mixing in Mendocino. I actually recorded that song with a woman named Jane Clark, who's amazing engineer. She used to work, the only female uh, engineer at Motown, and then she lived in, in the Sonoma County area. Area. So we tracked at her studio, and because I love our own Mendocino Peter Temple, I brought the project to Peter's studio to Mendocino. When we were mixing, I just felt like there was something missing, that my African funk chops was uh, almost sounding a little too rock for me. And there was uh, somebody from Ghana, a guy named Nisai, visiting, and Peter connected us, and he hardly spoke English, and we brought him out to Albion to play guitar and his style. I remember him saying, what do you want me to play? And I said, that's crazy. I want you to interpret what you hear. And what I love about Nisai and what I love about African guitar is that they find, they play within the holes of the music and and it just made the song a little more authentic of what I was trying to do. Mix the world together. Funk, groove, rock, African, Celtic, Afro-Celtic. And that's pretty much how African Moon tune came along. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of the WOMAD, the world of music and dance, which is also international. I worked with a lot of people in Britain when Tracy and I were working there who were involved with WOMAD, and it, I bet you you have a lot of the same connections. World of music and dance, they brought people from all over the world, Pakistan, bands from Zambia, etc., and they would tour around Europe, and it was really interesting that way. So a lot of the stuff that you're aiming for, they were doing and I know you've also done some Latin fusion. One of the bands that you talk about is the Blazing Redhead Latin Fusions. Yeah. That was a, such an amazing band. I remember there were a couple of us that were auditioning for that band, and I 
kept trying to tell I was friends with a few of the members anyway we you know had a warehouse in San Francisco we were all in the same warehouse and I remember telling them I am not qualified I'm not qualified you should probably go with a jazz drummer and they wanted to hire me because I was playing a lot of funk and I have really strong foot and I'm more of a bottom player meaning that I wasn't a jazz player which plays toms are tuned a little higher you play a lot of cymbals a lot of brass a lot of snare I was always about be on the floor tom be just simple groove kick snare hi-hat stuff but they wanted that and they said that they would teach me so they paid me to study with a with a guy named John Santos who I remember wanted to teach me more how to read music and I just said look we're going to open up for Pancho Sanchez in LA at the Playboy Jazz Fest and I need to know how to play samba and songo and chachas and every kind of Latin groove and just took a kind of a crash course. And it was great. It was an all instrumental band with two horn players, a really great conga timbali player and bass player and me on drums. And it was a big gig. We played at the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles, opening up for Pancho Sanchez. And I learned, I learned a lot. I learned a lot on how to play samba and how to play different Latin Afro-Cuban rhythms and it was a little more traditional meaning that if I played a samba then the timbali player and a conga player actually played the samba there wasn't as much fusing different cultures together it was really like okay, you're going to do this drum set part because the flute player is playing this and the piano player is playing this. Um, but I loved it. We did some really great tours and one of my favorite, favorite bands to play with. And I learned a lot and I just took the elements of that when I started playing with other bands. I kind of took some of the style of the Blazing Redheads and mixed it in because I'm a fusion drummer, mixed it in with more modern rock music. Yeah, Very cool. Another of your tracks that I know it perhaps not a band, but it's just that you have it there is drumming for Mendocino. And it's got some variety in it. And I wondered if you'd just talk to us about that so the folks can hear what's involved with that particular track. Well, I came down to Mendocino to visit and took my drums out on the cliffs facing town. So I was a little bit, I crossed over Big River Bridge and there's an area that I took all my drums out, which by the way, I got in trouble because it's, and I, which I thought was funny. You can't take your drums out and play. And the ocean was behind me and the lapping of the waves and just growing up in an ocean town and spending your time watching the rhythm and the ripples of the water being a visual intuitive drummer with mother nature I just felt like this is where I'm just going to look at the, the ocean and feel the water and pay tribute to mother nature and beautiful Mendocino it's lovely to hear it's one of those ones I guess I could play that the entire interview <laughs> I think <laughs> That's it's awesome. pretty cool you know <laughs> and I wanted to talk I wanted to ask about one other uh, one, which is a kind of a sentimental thing, returned for your family. You have a track that is called Train Stop in Belarus. Wonder if you could just go over that, some of the family connections. Yeah. 
that um, kind of came out with me trying to make my uh, composing for soundtrack music. And I'm just trying to get a library of different styles. And that just really came about during COVID lockdown, doing a lot of ancestry work on my mother's side because she's the, the elder and the last of us. And I'm Jewish, actually 100% Ashkenazi Jewish. And I started tracing back and found the shtetl in Minsk in Belarus and started looking up on YouTube and different areas of music that was coming out of Belarus from all the way back from when my great grandfather made the thousand mile trek because I wanted to hear well what kind of music was happening then what's happening now and I just got inspired and that tune I just felt like I wanted to mix kind of a klezmer Jewish feel but I also added some Greek picking guitar but there I go you know mixing the styles that sometimes gets me in trouble and I just wanted to pay tribute to my family and I I have never been to Belarus but I um, being a visual composer and drummer I just could imagine I had to go do some homework like are there trains in Belarus? Was somebody sitting there at a train stop? Okay, that's good. That's what I'm going to do. It's really just more of a visual of somebody waiting at the train stop to get on and get out. It's really interesting. And I'm so glad to hear the background for that. And I can imagine a couple hundred years ago, some girl in a shtetl in Minsk wanting to play drums. And then multiple generations later, she appears as Claudia Page. So... I thought that was kind of cool. My mind drifted during that particular piece, so that was cool. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, I want the drifting, and I want, um, when I compose soundtrack music, I want it to be visual enough so somebody is just thinking and putting them, you know, it's the way I drum as well of just being a visual drummer. So when I'm composing, it's just, a, yes, I want people to drift and kind of go be transported somewhere. You know, I got a couple of quirky side questions I have to ask you before we head toward uh, the end zone here. Tell me about the band When Girls Collide and describe the Angry Woman Festival. <laughs> I still don't know why they called it the Angry Women's Festival because nobody was angry. <laughs> But there is a, um, a, a woman named Lynn Messenger who had been produced in New York by Lori Anderson's producer. She was very avant. She didn't have a typical sweet female voice. It was a little bit lower. She had done really well with her stint in Germany. And we got called saying, do you want to go on this tour? It's called the Angry Women's Festival, which was amazing. So we were a power trio, which was great. I got to go with Kirsten Terigiano, who is the bass player for Jane. I mean, when I met Kirsten, we were in the free food line in Fort Bragg. And we just at eight years old and we always told each other, you know, we're going to be rock stars and go to Europe when we're adults. So just being able to do that, may she rest in peace. And so we went and did this tour in Berlin and in Austria. One quick little story. When we got to Berlin, we were staying with a couple and we had to go do a radio interview 
interview and it was only one stop away. And so our host said, do you want us to go with you? Because none of us spoke German. And we're like, no, 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 we can do it. One stop. We'll just go buy cheap tickets. So we go to the train stop. We don't know what it says. I said, look, these are cheap tickets. We'll just buy these. And it's an honor system in Germany on the train. <laughs> and so we're on the train looking, you know, my hair is bright red, dyed, and we're wearing leather jackets and stuff. Here comes the police asking people for their tickets. And so we show them our tickets. And then the two policemen start talking and then laughing. And then the whole train is erupting and everybody's laughing. And we're like, what, what, what's wrong? And then finally they gave us the tickets back. We do the interview. We get home to our host. We tell them the story that everybody was laughing at us on the train. We don't know what happened. They looked at our tickets and they all started laughing. And they said, German accent, well, do you still have the ticket? So we showed it to them and then they start talking in German and they start laughing. And we're like, what, what, what's the big deal? And they said, you bought dog passes. <laughs> and that, that was that was just really great. This was an awesome tour. They had, you know, a big tour bus with, you know, with sleepers. And we went all over Berlin. We went all over Austria and had a great show in Vienna. And that was it was really amazing. But that story always sticks out because we bought dog passes. <laughs> so much for being angry women. Yeah. You know. And I was also going to say that I was the first um, person in my family ever, um, Jewish family that went to Germany. Mm. And I remember that a friend of mine had given me a rosary um, beads and I had taken, I had put my star of David that my grandfather gave me on the rosary and asked my grandfather, I said, should I not be wearing this when I go to Germany? He's like, no, no, no. It's a form of prayer. It's fine. Which it was fine. But we stayed in the warehouse district right where the wall came down. And it was, you know, it was my first time in Germany. It was amazing, but it was also kind of bittersweet because I was the first person in the family that had gone to Germany. I know you now live in Eugene, Oregon with your wife of many years, Christine. I'm also married to a Christine. In addition to playing with various bands, you teach drumming, you do recording sessions, you're in your studio now as we speak. Just for those of you who don't have the visual, of course, Claudia has got drums behind her, she's got a keyboard, she's got a big picture of looks like an octopus drumming. That's because that's the name of your school. I mean, have you settled in at this point? You're still touring, you're still playing with bands, but you're a teacher now too. Give us some background on Claudia bang on a drum all day page uh, moment in life. Yeah, I'm I, I'm still banging on the drum. I mean, I even though I've been here for a few years now, I'm meeting a lot of people. Uh, obviously, COVID has made everything come to more of a standstill, but I'm still performing. I'm still traveling. I seem to be going up more towards um, Portland because I'm in Eugene a lot. There's a lot of stuff happening. And I have always loved teaching. I teach very unconventionally. I don't teach people how to read. I want to teach people how to use their ears and how to drum through imagery, through emotions, through colors, something just different. So I am working with at-risk kids uh, with significant trauma, emotional, physical trauma backgrounds. And we, I teach them really through emotions and colors, like what does red sound like when you play it? And usually it's angry. Does it have to be angry? Is it maybe it's passionate or through imagery instead of teaching somebody how to play 16th notes with an accent that sounds kind of like a 
train. I am going to play all these different train sounds and say, okay, we're going to do that. Like for me, I'm an old steam engine train. It's very funky and groove and my whole drumming kind of comes from that train feel. But there's nothing more empowering than a mother or a father calling me and saying that their child's emotional outburst has diminished by 50% or they're more engaged and they're happy. My goal is facilitating more group drumming and not just typical hand drums with floor toms, with mallets, with bells, with tongue drums, with anything, using chants, moving your body. COVID has made it a little hard for these group drumming. And besides working with kids, I also go into senior homes and do a program called Rhythm Healing, Rhythm in Motion, have people move their bodies because I feel like Our seniors have been locked down and we need to get them to work. So yes, Octopus School of Drums, it's amazing. It's a lot of fun. And in between, I'm still performing and writing and doing some film scoring. And and, um, I still bang the drum all day, like you say. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's been a pleasure talking with you. You're a drummer, you're a drum teacher, you're a percussionist, but you're also sort of the eclectical experience person. Claudia Page gets around and in a really fun way. So we want to thank you very much for being on Snap Sessions. Uh, You've been a joy. I knew you would be. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Claudia. Great to have you with us. I love you guys. Thank you. Thanks to our artist of the show, Claudia Page. Our production team includes Techmeister Marshall Brown, Jack of All Trades Ken Krause, writer interviewer Doug Nunn, and our logo designer, Daniel Stieglitz. Don't be an airhead. Get out there and do something creative. Dabble in something that inspires you. Read something challenging. Expand your perspective. Our aim is to give you an international outlook on the arts and a critical look at world politics. Salute the power of creativity and foster international solidarity. Make Mother Earth great again. Support for Snap Sessions is brought to you by listeners who contribute generously at our link, patreon.com forward slash snap sessions, or through the link in the Snap Sessions website, thesnapsessions.com, and also the link in our show notes.